Hello and welcome to Veterans for Responsible Leadership's podcast in Accountable America. Thanks for joining us. I'm your co-host and producer, Jason Belcher. I'm an Iraq veteran and former Air Force officer. We are really pleased to have with us today the founder and president of VFRL, Dr. Dan Barkoff, who is a emergency room physician, Navy SEAL, former Navy SEAL. By the way, we're going to have to do a show about how that happens someday. How do you go from being a, a special operator to an emergency room physician? That's got to be a story. Um, Orange podcast. Oh, okay. Well, we're really excited to have our guest join us today, Congresswoman Mikey Sheriff, who represents New Jersey's 11th Congressional District, has since, I think, 2019. She's a former Navy helicopter pilot and federal prosecutor, and according to the Center for Effective Lawmaking, which just named as the most effective member of New Jersey's congressional delegation. So, welcome. Well, thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Um, we are, are very happy to have you here, Congresswoman, and, and uh, you know we've you've been a, a friend to the to the organization now for for several years, and, and um, we're we're really thankful for that. Um, I thought I'd kick it off by uh, you know just kind of asking you you know a little bit about your background uh, for some of our listeners who might not know um, you know and how you how you came into military service and then and and how you left. It. Sure. Um, so I think my desire to serve in the military started when I was quite young and hearing stories about my grandfather's service in World War II. He was a B-24 bomber pilot. He was shot down over occupied France, rescued by the Free French. Um, several members of his crew were picked up by the Nazis and put in uh, camps. So he, uh, you know, he was very proud of his service, and he also combined with that, had a deep love of aviation and flying, which I inherited. And so it became my goal um, when I was in elementary school to become uh, a pilot in the military and follow in his footsteps. Did you, so you, so you go to the Naval Academy, right? And did you just think pilot the whole time? I did. I did. I went there um, with the intention of becoming a Navy pilot. And I'll tell you, um, that was a, you know, I was, I was concerned because um, it's a long commitment and, you know, I was worried how that would impact the ability to have a family. Um, but it was something I really wanted to do. And yet, as I was in my, um, you know, as I was in the the end of my time at the Naval Academy, they were lifting the combat exclusion rules for aviation. So um, when I had first entered the academy, there was there were set-asides for women aviator positions because they were very limited to the types of platforms women could be on. By the time I was graduating, it was just one group of pilot billets for everyone. And at that time, um, it you know, I wasn't sure I was actually going to be able to get a pilot billet. And as I was walking up, this was kind of an old school service selection, and it was the old computers at, with a kind of flashing cursor. And um, the number was sort of going down as I was walking up to, you know, say what I was going to service select. So I'm walking up to do that, and then you pass the computer screen. And I had counted the people ahead of me that I thought were going to go Navy Air, and I thought I wasn't going to get a pilot billet. Um, And so I I ended up getting the second to last pilot billet in my class. That doesn't probably speak 
highly of my, uh, <laughs> my uh, where where I fell in the class at the Naval Academy. But um, so I got the second to last pilot billet, and as I walked out, there was this World War II aviator in a bomber jacket, and he, I think he had a cane, and he kind of came up to me and he goes, "Do you see that?" And I said, and I'm kind of still like, oh, my God, I can't believe my dreams finally come true. I've got this pilot uh -huh. and I didn't think it was going to happen. I'm still almost shaky with, like, relief and joy. And, and he comes up and he goes, you see that? You got the second to last one. I said, oh, yes, sir, I know that. And he said, you worked too hard, didn't you? <laughs> 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 oh, yeah, maybe not hard enough. But, um, but that was, yeah, that was, ha uh, that was the, the billet I was able to get at that time. Um, and then you go off and did you, were, were helos your first choice or did you get assigned to a helicopter? So I wanted at that time, I, I wanted to be in an aircraft with mission. So I wanted jets or helicopters. Um, and, uh, a lot of people wanted the, the larger platforms. A lot of people in, uh, naval aviation go on to commercial jets and stuff and it's better to fly yeah. like a you know, larger aircraft, but I wanted to be landing on ships and, and kind of stuff like that. So, um, so that's how I ended up in helicopters. And you flew 60s, right? No, believe it or not, I flew H3s. I, and the okay. last of the H3s are just about to go out of service. Marine One is an H3, yep. um, the president's helicopter. And they, the, the new helicopter by Sikorsky is already uh, in the final phase of testing. So pretty soon, the last of the H3s in our fleet will be retired. Gotcha. Okay. So time goes on. You do your time in service. You get out. And in, in a moment, what I assume was a youthful indiscretion, decide to go to law school and are uh, and, and working as a prosecutor, correct? Yeah. So I went... So I was in the military, and when you're a, an aviator, much like when you're a SEAL, you have to go to SEER school uh, in the event that you're taken um, prisoner. And when I was at SEER school, we were we were told that all of the types of things, the you know the the ways that um, you were interrogated, the ways you were sort of beaten up, the 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 sort of torture that they did to you in SEER school, we were told were methods developed from people who had been POWs because these were things that other militaries did or other countries did. The United States would never do this. And we would always have the moral high ground to argue in the world community for your release because we, uh, had, you know, we had principled views on how to treat people. And so I was in the military when we entered into the Iraq war and to hear stories of torture and rendition um, and, and what was going on in Guantanamo led me to um, you know, feel strongly that that was so contrary to the values that I believed in and the reason I was serving and the promises I had been made by the United States government that I was serving a country that would never do this. And I felt in some ways, you know, here I was, active duty, as we we as a country were doing that, which I thought was um, deeply, deeply contrary to our values. And so at that time, the only p part of our government, which I, you know, I regard as ironic now because um, 
I, I have real qualms with our Supreme Court. But at that time, the only part of our government that was standing up for those values and that, that was providing some relief against that was really the Supreme Court in some of the, the cases that they were hearing. And so at that time, I decided to go to law school um, to support the views and values that I, I took um, so seriously and I, I felt so um, deeply the need to protect. Did you ever meet McCain? I did not. You know, I always assumed I would. Um, yeah. And I, I certainly have been to Munich. I've met his wife and, and been to various events. I, I serve with a lot of people in national security who worked closely with him. Um, and it's, it's sad to say it's one of those things where I always sort of thought, oh, I'm sure I'll meet him. I'm sure our paths will cross, and I'm so sorry they never did. Yeah. Um, he was a cool dude, man. I'll tell you, when I was a midshipman, so I was a poli-sci major, right? So I forget why we had to go to the Capitol for some, like a field trip, basically. For the listeners, like where uh, the congresswoman and I went to school at Annapolis is about 45 minutes or so from the Capitol. So we go there and, you know, we're in our, you always have to wear like a dress uniform when you go out in public at the at the academy. And so we're wandering around Capitol Hill and, you know, I, we get, you get it, we're getting some kind of tour and, um, you know, John McCain's office is, uh, is there and I kind of poke my head in and, you know, they see that I'm in uniform and they're like, oh, you want to talk to the senator? I was like, yes, I would love to talk to the senator. And I'm like 20 years old. And he's like, oh, come on in. And, you know, we sit down in his office for a good half an hour. And he had, like, several phone calls. And he was like, I'll call you back later. I'm, like, talking to a midshipman right now. And um, he was just, you know, just so uh, – such a good man. And, and, you know, I mean, nobody's perfect, of course. But, you know, his his sense of right and wrong and, and kind of what he was willing to, you know, go to the mat for is something I've always I've always really admired. Yeah, um, we all, you know, at the Naval Academy learned of his service and um, his time as a POW, how injured he was from ejection injuries, um, the fact that he refused release um, because uh, he knew that the, with the laws of war that it was not his time to be released. It was just being used as a political stunt. Um, and... I think for many of us, for, for many veterans, um, we had hoped that President Trump's campaign was different from how he would govern as a president. And I think, you know, his treatment of John McCain really showed his true colors in many ways um, to many of us. I, I couldn't agree more. And, and, you know, I'm curious now. Right. And, and, you know, that kind of gets right at what I, I was really curious to pick your brain about. Um, you know, VFRL was sort of founded with this idea that having served together, there'd be enough of us who uh, there'd be a critical mass of people who serve in the military who, you know, duty, honor, country first, um, short term political gain, a, a distant third or, you know, that type of thing. And, you know, it. it in many ways over the last couple of years with the Trump administration, I've had to kind of ask myself if those initial assumptions were true. Um, and my question for you is, what is it like now 
being a member of Congress and, you know, perhaps working with or perhaps not working with, uh, you know, veterans of military service on the other side of the aisle, maybe who are, you know, very pro MAGA or the like, um, you know, is there is there is there room to work there is, you know, what what is what is that like on Capitol Hill? That, you know, that's a question that constantly, I, I'm constantly looking for an answer to that one because um, it sort of cuts both ways. It's easier in many ways to work with veterans across the aisle because you come from some of the same places, you understand, you have a certain worldview, and a lot of our veterans are not... Um, isolationist because a lot of our veterans have a broader view of the world. Um, You have some members of Congress who probably um, haven't really been very far outside their districts very often or don't meet a lot of people um, that don't think just like them, look just like them, have have gone to the same schools they have. And it's a very similar um, world for some of them, but we know that our veterans have worked with people from all over the country and traveled all over the world. And even um, some people that I most disagree with, if they are a veteran, they have just a little more empathy, I find, for other people um, than your, your sort of non veteran person having experienced so many more interactions with so many different types of people. Um, but I, so, so in that sense, I, I often find that, that we have this common understanding. I think there's a little more trust across the aisle um, as you're building those relationships and you get to those places sooner. The other, on the other side of that, though, is I hold our veterans to a higher standard. Um, yeah. I, sure, everyone in Congress has taken an oath to the Constitution and um, it concerns me. Um, how some of the people interpret that. I'm sorry, if I if I don't have my dog in here, she's like scratching at the door. We're not doing so pets are welcome. Yes. Okay. Um, so, uh, but but veterans, I just feel you know you've given your life to service to this country. We've given you the privilege of serving this country. Given you responsibilities uh, far outweigh the responsibilities we give to most people in this country. And so you have this special responsibility to guard and protect the country. And when our veterans um, fail at that, that is, um, I judge that more harshly in some ways um, for those very reasons. So in the aftermath of January 6th, I was, um, I had a very difficult time. I I almost quit the bipartisan veterans caucus I'm a member of. Um, And when, you know, I was encouraged to stay because we so need these ties between veterans and to develop a better path forward. When I did that, um, I did have a, we did have sort of a family discussion and and I was very direct about my concerns. Um, And, you know, there's probably still some, Um, in the aftermath of that, some of us still have our disagreements, but we're continuing to work towards that. And so while yes, I've been incredibly disappointed by some of the veterans serving in Congress, I also see 
that sort of desire to focus deeply on serving the country and other members. And I, you know, one of the chairs of the Poor Country Caucus is Tony Gonzalez, and he's facing several primaries given his views on guns, given his views on Im immigration, um, and has really, I think, stood deeply with his district. Um, that's where Uvalde took place, and um, I think his duty to protect people in his district in this country, and then also his understanding of the world at large and having maybe more empathy um, for for a good path forward for, for people in this country um, and how that might work. What is your, you know, what has your experience been where, let me back up for a second, you know, us on the outside, right? You know, consumers, citizens consuming information about how their government works. There's this sort of, um, you know, perhaps hope um, that, or maybe it's true, it, it, that uh, many on the Republican side of the aisle, um, you know, are kind of uh, keeping their thoughts to themselves and that, you know, really they, you know, they, they tell you that uh, they don't like President Trump or, you know, they have reservations about MAGA and things like that. Is that, is it, does that happen? Do you, do you have people who are, uh, and I'm not asking you to name names, uh, but, you know, are, do you have people who that, in certain contexts would say to you, oh, you know, I, I can't wait to be over Trump. I can't wait for, you know, does, does that happen? Um, I think that, um, yes, that happens. I think there are Republican members of Congress who really want to get stuff accomplished and are finding that despite the fact that they are in the majority, they are unable to do that with some of the far-right extremist members of their party that hold mm -hmm. up um, legislation moving forward. Um, so I also think, you know, obviously, um, President Trump didn't win re-election. Right. I think many people would say the candidates that he supported were largely responsible for um, not having a red wave in the last election. And so um, not only lost his election and, you know, didn't win back any majorities in, um, in 2020, we had the majority in the Senate and the House, and I think he was largely responsible for that, and then um, further impacted what should have been a wave election by all historical measures, um, right. public party certainly wasn't. Yeah. Um, it's interesting. The, the conventional wisdom certainly was that there was going to be this red wave. Um, a friend of mine, Steve Kornacki, you know, he fully expected this, this massive red wave. And he was good, a good New Jersey uh, person. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well beloved so, in my district. <laughs> um, so, well, let me ask you this. So if you are a person who is... If you're a member of Congress, okay, why is it so hard to take political risk? Um, I mean, I think there's certainly some just general human psychology there, right? But, you know, people value loss more than or potential reciprocal gain, okay? And so, you know, once you're elected to Congress, um, why are there so few Elaine Lurias and, you know, so many people who are just willing to go? Is, is it a character flaw? Are the pressures that great? 
that uh, you know people were in this case you know willing to sign an amicus brief to overturn election results in Pennsylvania. I mean, what what is it about once you have a seat and you're an incumbent that makes it so hard at times to do what so many people just see as the right thing? Yeah, I think um, it's interesting because um, I think so many people see certain things as the the right thing to do. And yet, um, you know, governing is, governing in a legislature is um, set up to be a series of compromises. And so many of us are taught that you should never compromise, right? right, right. And so many of the things we do are, they're not, you know, and, and, it's, and certainly um, in the aftermath of January 6th, I would say there was more there. So this is not a, an explanation for that. I have no explanation for why people, when our government was on the brink like that, wouldn't have um, shown more courage in that moment. Um, and I think that's a real failing, a true failing. Um, however, um, I will say that um, those of us in the legislature are constantly making calculations on how we are going to get legislation passed to support our district. Sure. And many of us represent districts with very people with very strong opinions. I happen to represent a district with people with very strong opinions on just about every issue and often on the opposite sides of that issue. So um, I have a very diverse district. Uh, we're in New Jersey, so we have people from all over the world, but then we also have a politically diverse district with some very, um, very left people, and then we have areas of the district that are very right. Um, mm -hmm. So, so um, I work very hard to hear from people and, and come to um, areas where we can agree and how I can best serve. So, um, but people have very little patience for that. And I think they're driven to impatience. They're driven to frustration, often by um, cable news or social media, sort of driving the most dramatic narrative. Um, there is an incredible amount going on right now uh, in so many ways, um, how the economic future of this country, um, how we deter Chinese aggression, um, how we ensure that the Ukrainians are able to protect their sovereign territory. Um, and yet I, and I haven't turned on TV because I've heard this is what's on it right now. And I'm just, I've got too much to do, but I have heard that it is just 24 seven of Trump's drive to, you know, and travel to New York and then travel home. And, and certainly that's very important. Um, and, and, a, you know, a very important discussion about how we treat a former president possibly running again and, and what that means to our democracy. But I also think that that, that is something that, um, is being used on the news to get ratings. And, and so, you know, they're not looking for interviews with people who are thoughtful about it, like, oh, I'm concerned about this, but I support this. They're looking for people who are very irate and, and driving that narrative. Um, and so I think sometimes when you're trying very hard to sort out a piece of legislation and find allies on that, if you don't produce immediately, I don't know how many times I... Um, I, you know, I, I, there was a piece of legislation at one point I really wanted, I voted for it, I wanted to pass it, I wanted it passed over to the Senate right away, but different people were holding it up, 
And, you know, I, I had irate phone calls, Mikey, why don't you just pass this legislation? Why don't you show some courage and pass it? And I said, well, I mean, I've certainly voted for it. I'm supporting it. I've told leadership I want to pass it. I've been out in public saying, let's get that on the floor. I'm like, but Congress isn't an army of one. <laughs> like, you know, I don't single-handedly right. determine how 435 people operate. And I think there's very little patience in the country. And I think that comes from a lack of faith and trust in our institutions right now that we need to to build back. And, and I'll just, this is kind of a really long conversation that I could go on for hours about. But I also recently had someone in my office who had served on the Hill in the 70s. And he was telling me things worked much better. There was much more comedy between uh, Democrats and Republicans. And they were they were not nearly as busy. He goes, I don't know what you all do. You seem busy all the time. People were not nearly as busy. Busy, And he said things were passing legislation. Um, there were more people involved and more people empowered to do that, but it was more messy. Right. And, and I just heard that. And I said, well, everyone thinks there's this golden era that we have to get back to. We have to make Congress work better. And we all have to come together and work together in a better way, and, and we're working to do that. We have these bipartisan caucuses. We have the Reagan O'Neill Club where we're meeting to just in a social way, not in a legislative way, to try to form these relationships better so we can come together to serve the country better. But my constituents don't have tolerance for messy right now. Messy yeah. to them screams incompetence and, oh, Congress isn't working. And, and without... You know, when he says, oh, it was more messy, I'm like, well, that doesn't feel like that's going to be the path forward that is um, amenable to people. And then he was very dismissive. I don't, you know, that I don't know what you do all day. Now, I would tell him that some of it's fundraising, which we do have to fix. I mean, that sure. is an area that is just, I think, um, the Citizens United decision was, was really horrible for our democracy. And, and we have yet to be able to overcome that. Um, that was HR one actually in the Democratic caucus to try to fix that, um, and we're continuing to work towards that. So that is an area we need to fix. But then the other side of that is we do a lot of communications. My constituents want to know what's going on. Congress is yeah. is um, while it's um, not as trusted as it was before, it's certainly a lot more interesting to people than it ever was before. And so we need to make sure people understand what's going on. That is their right as American citizens. And that is important. So sort of, yeah, a lot we do stuff on social media. And yes, I, I don't love that all the time as a means of communicating because it's not as substantive maybe as I'd like. But that is the world we're in. And we need, as a country, as members of Congress, as elected officials, to get on a better path with Congress working together, but in the new era. We're not going to go back to the 1970s when we all lived in D.C. and we worked nine to five and we went home and we didn't have social media accounts and we didn't have to raise millions of dollars. That we got to act in the, you know, we've, we've got to act in the, the realm we're in and, and accept where we're at and find a good future as opposed to kind of bemoaning our fate. Is this all, in your opinion, I mean, is this sort of the unintended consequences of, you know, things like 24-hour cable news and, you know, the downstream effects? Yeah, I think certainly. Yeah. Because if you're going to be on 24 hours a day, and it's not simply publicly funded television, and you need sponsors, you know, you're not necessarily going to broadcast the latest installment of the House Armed Services Committee's right. hearing on, right. you know, 
what we're going to do for our supply chain resilience. Sure. You sure. know, you're going to, you probably fell asleep as I was saying that title. <laughs> so, you know, you need to drive viewership and, and, you know, I think that has been in many ways, um, bad for people's understanding and faith in our democratic institutions. Because the narrative is always driven to the most salacious, the worst offenders, the, the thing that's not going right, the thing we all need to be worried about. And I think, you know, we've, we've seen a lot of mental health issues in the wake of COVID. And one of the first things a lot of our psychiatrists say here is stop watching cable news. I mean, it does drive the sense of, oh my gosh, there are these million horrible things happening right now. And I think because we've all been trained in a democracy that as citizens, we have a stake in handling them, we all feel responsible. And if we don't do something about this right now, you know, it's the end. So stop watching cable news, but start, you know, but continue to inform yourself on those issues and what's going on. And maybe, you know, sometimes you can't be a jack of all trades, maybe given your background, if you were an educator, if you are a veteran, if you are a first responder, maybe educate yourself on, on the pathway forward there and what you think might be the best way and, um, and feel like, you know, and, and kind of empower yourself on those areas where you have some expertise and if you want to get engaged in that way. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think there's, there's certainly truth in that. I, I can tell you when I, so I quit Twitter about, I don't know, six months ago or something like that. And um, I don't know, just my, my, uh, my temperament has, you know, like you're not constantly responding to the latest clickbait, right? And so, you know, it, it, things don't feel as, as sort of, um, you know, kind of crisis moment to moment. And, you know, you're not watching, you know, the George Floyd trial in real time or whatever it is. And, and it just, um, it takes the temperature down. And so... Dan, do you mind if I jump in with a question real quick? Um, I was just going to ask you, you brought up a key point earlier about how do we make Congress better. Um, and I think one of the ways it's possible to do that is by getting more veterans involved in, in running for elected office and winning. So for folks out there who may be listening, who have served and maybe have thought about running for office or who want to do that, I was just wondering, since you've been successful at doing so, what, what advice would you give to them and what recommendations would you make? Uh, what, what things should they avoid doing? What should they definitely do to increase their chances of success in the, the modern political landscape that we live in? You know, there are um, some groups that support veterans running for Congress now, and um, certainly they've, I think, grown um, in both the Democratic and the Republican parties in, in sort of as organizations and organizations that train candidates. Um, I'm, I'm, as you can imagine, more aware of those supporting Democratic candidates, um, but um, uh, you know, we have uh, vote vets, um, and then um, um, a group like that will support a veteran. It's, it's so, uh, as a woman candidate in the Democratic Party, um, Emily's List supports pro-choice women candidates. Uh, the veterans groups support veterans, and often, if you are running against somebody who is not a veteran, those, those groups can be very supportive and very helpful. They will be behind you, even in a primary, um, because they support veterans. So I think initial outreach to a group like that to find out about candidate training, um, it is, uh, you know, running for office is very different from, from
from anything most veterans have done. And then serving in Congress is certainly different. Um, you know, I, when I say to people, I ran this campaign, you know, largely in my area, in my district, uh, my first campaign, basically people were concerned about affordable health care, um, rebuilding our infrastructure, especially the Gateway Tunnel, and getting rid of the state and local ta tax deduction cap. And I ran on that, and I had good support for that, and I had a plan, and I thought it would go to Congress, and we would all get the group together that cared about that. We would figure out the path forward and where we could get the votes and go for it. And as I'm saying this, people in Washington start laughing at me, right? Because it's just, that is such a military mindset, right? We're all going right. to come together on the plan. Um, we're going to talk about the plan and disagree on it, but once our commanding officer makes a choice, we are going to execute. No matter what we think about the plan, we're going to execute the plan and we are going to get it done and we're going to do it together and then we're going to move on to the next issue done, right? And that is not how Congress works, um, it, for better and for worse. And so um, I think just kind of understanding, you know, how campaigning works, the art, you know, what you're getting into um, and then just having support. So. I'll tell you that um, I'm always surprised because I hear often Congress is a lonely place. You know, here you are, you're, um, you're, you know, you have your home and your family in New Jersey and you go down to your apartment or some people even um, are sleeping in their offices and you go down there and you, you just, you don't have your, your friends and your social group. That has not been my experience in large part because uh, as I was running for Congress, I was running with a lot of the veterans that I now serve with and who are now very good friends of mine and sort of have provided that um, support network in Congress and also um, helped me get legislation passed or get attention for different legislation. So um, those groups, uh, those veterans groups can also be helpful in that way in building a network of people, uh, something that, that as veterans we all like is a team. We like, to, we like to have the team, and that's not Congress. It's, we all laugh as veterans because, you know, in so many of the ways we move forward, we move forward as with with our, our team. And and, um, and when a lot of us started working together, we'd say, oh, we're going to go here and go fundraising. They'd say, oh, you, you never fundraise with anybody else. Like, you need to make all the money, right? And and there was just this, and, or you never go forward with a piece of legislation with anyone else because you need all the credit. And I think there was a lack of understanding, especially in the House of Representatives, that an individual member of the House is not often, and you all know the exceptions, but not often in their own right somebody that is going to get an incredible amount of attention. It is with a group of people that you come forward with that legislation and people are talking about it. And that's how the legislation you know, gets some uh, level of awareness in the population and you can then get some pushback into Congress and get it through. So. Uh, that is something that I would advise for, for veterans who are considering running. And, and please do. We need more. <laughs> uh, Congresswoman, i got one more question for you. So this is a question from uh, that I asked uh, Admiral Stavridis when he was on here the other day. And, uh, you know, we closed the interview by saying, um, you know, if America's a stock, are you buying or are you selling? What's, are, are you short on America? Are you long on America? And why? I am incredibly bullish on America, and I am buy, buy, buy. I will tell you, um, you know, in the election of, of 2016, 
I supported um, Hillary Clinton. I thought she, I, I thought and think she is one of the most talented people, um, one of the smartest people. I've been with a lot of people in the national security space, admirals, generals, other other civilians who say in rooms, you know, where like in the Situation Room or rooms where decisions are being made, she was a ten every time. Um, an incredibly impressive person. But that said, it just felt like America had a great deal of inertia, um, that we sort of had these calcified views of the world and were not really addressing problems. Um, so everyone sort of knew that, you know, everyone knows that it's harder to um, treat diabetes than nutrition, but we, we somehow could not muster the will to put in place nutrition programs at an early age um, or address food deserts. Um, people, you know, all the research says, I come from a background of criminal justice reform, all the research says Head Start just pays huge dividends in that space. But we couldn't stop pouring money into the Bureau of Prisons instead of addressing the root problem. Infrastructure, I mean, you name the issues going on in this country, it's just like we could not address the problems. And right now, it feels totally different to me. Um, we have put money into infrastructure. We've put money into reshoring American manufacturing. Um, we are fixing healthcare, just driving down um, the cost of diabetes medication, which is insulin, which is shocking. The, the exorbitant price that people are paying for that for life-saving medication. Um, so um, we are now doing all of these things, and and there just feels like there's an openness in the ideas we have in this country, and that to me is when America's at its best. When there's a nimbleness, when there's that innovative spirit, when you have entrepreneurship, when you're investing in research and development. And I think for too many years, we were taking away so many tools from American innovators and, and you know exporting them overseas, and we are, we are done with that, and we are ready to compete globally, and it's not just the United States that wants to do that. Our friends and allies are, are ready to compete as well in a way in the national security space when you're telling all your allies don't let Huawei put their architecture into your cell phone networks you know they were like oh but it's so cheap now you know people are realizing the threat and I think we are coalescing around um, the rules-based order that democracies around the world set up and, and ready to fight for that and ready to ensure that, that that's the future that we see so I I am incredibly bullish on America right now Love it. Thank you, Congresswoman. Thank you so much for your time, and uh, and best of luck to you with the, le the rest of the legislative session. Well, thanks so much, and great talking to you guys. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to An Accountable America, brought to you by Veterans for Responsible Leadership. If you want to learn more about the organization, you can find us on Twitter or Facebook or online at www.vfrl.org.